entering the Freedom Hut. A lot of national security stories heating up. A possible Iranian plot to strike at U.S. interests or allies in the Middle East. Of course, the exchange of missiles and response between Israel and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Is Maduro going to be out in Venezuela? And then, do the Democrats have a serious contender yet of the 20 or so to take President Trump's place in the next election? We'll break down what's happened with Biden and Harris and all the rest coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We got a lot to get to today. A lot of national security stuff. We'll be joined by my friend uh, Davide Foon and then uh, Tony Sha- Lieutenant Colonel Tony Schaefer. So we've got much, much to discuss. But there was a little bit of a of a panic, I think, in some of the Democrat quarters here in the swamp and across the country more broadly at the recognition that if things continue as they are right now, Trump's going to win. He's going to win. He's got an approval rating today, according to Gallup, at a new high of 46%. And you look at what's happened with the economy under the president, and and then you start to juxtapose that. You compare that to what the Democrats told us was going to happen if, in fact, Trump became president. And not only is it not a disaster, but it has actually been incredibly strong. Uh, Things are going very, very well. And so there's a struggle on the left to find some narrative. Why should people be so dissatisfied with this president. You got 1.2 million more job openings than unemployed in the country. What are people supposed to, what are people supposed to come up with as the the storyline of why this is so awful? You know, how, how do the Democrats sell this idea to people um, that, Trump needs to go. We need to put Bernie Sanders in place. Would you risk? I mean, I I really ask you, would you risk the value of of your home? Would you risk the strength of your 401k, your health care plan on Bernie Sanders being a better steward of the economy at this point than Donald Trump? Could any serious person really make that case right now? I, I think at least maybe a serious person could, but. It wouldn't be a very serious case. That's where we are. And that's why when you look at the candidates, the Democrat candidates that are lining up, I think a lot of them are just trying to play a bit to the the left wing base to get enough of a number going that they're in contention. But they don't yet have the narrative. They don't yet have the storyline as to why they should why they should replace Trump. Some of them may have really been hoping all along that the Mueller probe was going to do their work for them, that, that Trump would be so damaged when that report was finally released that it wouldn't be necessary to have a compelling why. Why should somebody vote for any of these Democrats uh, that are 
aspiring to run against Trump over the current president? What is the the real reason for it? Oh, because of Trump's Twitter habits, because of the way that he speaks about the press. I, my favorite thing really about Trump is the way he speaks about the press, to be honest with you, the, the way that he takes the fight to them and, and does not allow them to be this this really nasty group of untalented you know, snickering high school students who all just cover each other's back and say the same things, think the same things. A lot of group think that that Trump holds them to account is one of my favorite things about this president. But you, you look at the the crew that has been assembled to try and oppose him, the, the people that they're offering up. I mean, that J- Joe Biden is. He calls Trump a clown, which I think is so funny. Psychologists would call that projection. I mean, Joe Biden is a clown. There's nothing about Joe Biden that is impressive. There's nothing about Joe Biden that makes you think, wow, this is somebody that I would want to have on my debate team or have my back in a bar fight or, you know, you name it, performing surgery on me, writing a speech for me. Joe Biden is a man whose only talent is advancing the career prospects in political office of Joe Biden. And beyond that, he's quite a weird guy. They've tried to tell us for a long time. And, you know, he's the primary competitor to Trump right now. They've tried to tell us for a long time that he's so you know, kind of charming. And, oh, you know, Joe is a great guy because of this and that. And he's so funny. And he's like your crazy uncle with the. No, that's the spin. That's the storyline that they want you to accept. They want you to believe. But it's not rooted in reality. He's a weird guy. And as they look more into some of his dealings in the past, and I think some of his his family dealings, some of what he has done for his own family members, used his office to their benefit, it's going to get very hard to get past the whiff of corruption and self-dealing from the the Biden clan. Um, But I saw this over the weekend. Uh, I had never seen this video before of Joe Biden um, this is from 2007, so this isn't some 30-year-old clip that we we uh, dredged up for you. This is from 2007. This is the Democrat frontrunner for the presidency in 2020, who is just he's just going to tell you about what he spent his summer doing, and I, I think you need to hear this for yourself. Play clip five, Joe Biden, summer. There's neglect in the part of the medical and the white community focusing on educating the minority community out there. I spent last summer going through the black sections of my town holding rallies in parks, trying to get black men to understand it's not unmanly to wear a condom, getting women to understand they can say no, getting people in the position where testing matters. I got tested for AIDS. I know Barack got tested for AIDS. There's no shame in being tested for AIDS. It's an important thing because the fact of the matter is in the community, in the communities engaged in denial, they're engaged in denial. No one wants to talk about it in the community, and we do not have enough leaders in the community and outside the community demanding we face the reality, confront the men in the community, as well as the women, letting them know there are alternatives. Thank you. Joe Biden claims there. All right. I'm you heard it. I'm not I'm not uh, getting creative here with with some transcript or Joe Biden claims back in 2007 that he was 
quote, going through the black sections of my town, trying to get black men to understand it's not unmanly to wear a condom. What? What the heck is like, what is? Wow. This is Joe Biden, though. When he's not doing this, which I, I understand he's talking about maybe trying to do you know, HIV prevention or something, but just the way that he discusses these issues, the, the way that he holds himself up as somebody that can just relate to anybody. No, he's a weird guy. He is a weird guy doing weird stuff. There's the sniffing and the grabbing and the kind of gropey grope stuff, too. Uh, this is the best the Democrats have to offer. This is what they've got. I, I think some of them are, and, and I bring this up today because after those job numbers last week, you know, job creation was huge and way exceeded expectations. Um, and just the, the overall positive trajectory of the American economy. And, and I think American, in many ways, American day-to-day life. I mean, there is an optimism. You can convince yourself there's no optimism. You can convince yourself that Putin is running this country that Trump stole the election, that Trump is a member of the KKK. I mean, you can be a delusional, you know, freak if you want. I mean, you can be a weirdo. You can. And a lot of Democrats have done that. They've they've convinced themselves that there's an alternate reality that we're all living in. You know, it's like this is the Matrix, except instead of Agent Smith, there's just Trump's running around everywhere. Or they can deal with what's really happening, which is that the country's doing pretty well. They're still Tons of challenges and all that. I'm not saying, I mean, the border drives me nuts right now. But you'll see that the Obama administration uh, head of Border Patrol, uh, Trump is now putting him forward to be running running ICE. We had him, Producer Mike, didn't we have him on the show recently? I know I interviewed him for Rising. I can't always remember which show I did the interview on. Um, but he's very strong on the border. So they're going to they're gonna deal with that issue. But Joe Biden? Does anyone really think he's going to make the country a better, happier, safer, more prosperous place based on what? You know, based on his un I mean, just unbelievable and unashamed pandering that he will do to people. I mean, this is a guy who is he's the quintessential tell you what you want to hear politician, say one thing to one group, another thing to another group does not care how how slimy it all is just 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 peddling nonsense to people as long as it benefits him you know he's he's running around saying you know he does do very well with the minority community so far in the democratic party i i have asked friends of mine who are uh democratic strategists who are african-american like why do they like joe biden so much why does the black community support but they support biden over cory booker over kamala harris now, I'm somebody who's an advocate for you support people based on who they are and what they believe, not the color of, of their skin. But if you're a party, as the Democratic Party is, that is so rooted in identity politics, wouldn't you think that the African-American community would say, well, you know, we've got a, a black man and a black woman who are both running for president. There'd be a greater support. No, they like they like, they prefer not everyone, but the majority numbers show they prefer Joe Biden. And it's because of his association with uh, Barack Obama. It's because uh, there's a sense that a, a Biden presidency might be a return to the Obama years, which I, I, I don't even think it's true. I don't think that Biden is anywhere near the political force that that Obama was. It's not even the same conversation. It's really not in the same category. 
But you can tell Biden's trying to get a little bit of a steam going. He's trying to get a wind at his, at his back by, I guess if you're using steam, he wouldn't be using wind, but you know what I mean. Uh, saying things like this, play clip four. Speaking of dignity, it means we have to protect, which is not happening now, the single most important right you have as an American, the right to vote, the right to vote. And folks, last year, 24 states introduced or enacted at least 70 bills to curtail the right to vote. And guess what? Mostly directed at, quote, people of color. You see it. We got Jim Crow sneaking back in. No, I mean it. It's all across. Why? Why? Because they know. You saw it in North Carolina. You saw what happened in Georgia. You saw what happened in Florida. Why? Because you know if everybody has an equal right to vote, guess what? They lose. They lose. He's kind of a moron. You know, I really, and I don't like to throw that terminology around, but he's really not a very smart guy. Uh, he's just he's been listening to the tape, so to speak, for a long time. He, he knows what he's expected to say in different categories, different uh, situations. And but really not a bright individual from what I what I see and what I hear. And I mean, to say that Jim Crow is sneaking back in is such a reckless and dishonest thing for a, a prominent member of the Democratic Party to say. But. He knows that if, if he, especially in, in states like uh, you know North Carolina, and you know he knows if and Georgia, if he can convince the African American community that he is their biggest advocate, that's an enormous advantage over the rest of the field. So he'll just say whatever he has to say. But that's what you get with Joe Biden. There is no political core. There is no particular belief system. Joe Biden believes in Joe Biden, and Democrats who are honest know this. And know that that's probably not going to be enough in an era of Trump not just presiding over a very successful economy, but also being able to take the fight to his opponents himself, not have to worry about a, a, a mainstream media filter deciding you know, when he can talk and who he can talk to and how he can say things. You know, Biden's come up with clown as a nickname. He wants to play the nickname game with Trump. Ooh, man. This is this is going to look like the varsity against the freshman team. He's really going to get into a name calling contest with Donald Trump. I mean, Joe Biden telling you, folks, you, you know, I've been saying it all along. He is. He, I do not think he's going to be the nominee and he's going to flame out here. People are going to realize he just doesn't have it. And what's amazing is the Democrats for two years have been telling us that Trump is a traitor. He's the worst and all this stuff. Who are they offering up to replace him? Joe Biden? They can't be serious. I guess they are, but it's ridiculous. All right, we got a lot more. I do want to talk to you all about the some of the big national security stories today. Uh, I feel like there's, there's some trouble brewing outside of just the uh, military response that Israel had for the uh, terrorist attacks from Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But, you know, Iran, we've got a carrier group on the way right now. I've been tasked to have a show of force to the Iranians and Obviously, Venezuela, there's still that fight for power and fight for supremacy in, in Caracas. So we'll get into that quite a bit and to talk about some of the other Democrats in the field right now. It's one of these days where there's a lot of different stories, a lot of threads we have to pull together. There's not one mega story today, but I kind of like that because we can cover a lot of ground. So we'll be back with more. My one question to you is, uh, 
Was it like that working for other politicians? You've worked for politicians. I've definitely worked for politicians. Have they, they all insist, insist on slavery? Come on, you're talking to a woman of color here, right? No, I mean, I'm like, serious. Nothing compares some bosses are notoriously bad to people, and they do humiliate their people. I mean, bad to people, humiliate people, it's still very short of slavery. Lyndon Johnson was an awful man. He did treat them like slaves. And the fact is, it didn't get it. we didn't hear about it until later. Chris Matthews is an idiot. Yeah, slavery is that. What, what is NBC doing? Well, why is this guy someone that we have to listen to talk about politics or anything else? I, I give credit that, that the panelist there was uh, Juanita Tolliver, who does uh, Rising with me a lot. She's a Democrat. I'm actually very fond of Juanita. She's uh, really nice and a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, but good for her. For, what, are you, what are you saying? Working on a political campaign is like slavery? I mean, if he said it once and he was trying to say it with a rhetorical flourish, I get it. But he really drilled down and like, oh, it's slavery. It's like slavery. This is one of, one of the problems in this town is that you have, and I mean, in the swamp here, you have this uh, this hierarchy of morons that we have to listen to about politics and about America. And if you question it, you're told that you know you, there must be something wrong with you. Meanwhile, no no person who knows anything thinks that Chris Matthews knows anything, and yet he's a you know multimillionaire who does his show on on MSNBC. This guy yelling and blah blah blah. Ooh. but. Democrats have uh, there's a there's a lack of Democrat mojo right now. There's a lack of a sense of purpose because they they can't just keep talking about impeachment every day because they know that ultimately they just want to they, they, they want to get to impeachment, but they don't have what they need yet. And I don't think they're ever going to get it. Uh, they they are all fired up about Mueller testifying. Mueller's not going to testify for at least I think it's two or three weeks now. And Trump has said he doesn't want him to. I think Mueller is going to testify, so maybe that's a a good place for us to transition the discussion here in just a moment. I think Mueller will testify, and it won't be nearly as exciting for Democrats as they want it to be. But there is a story that uh, I see just broke on Fox about leaks from the intel community to the media to get Trump. What's going on here? We've got that and more coming up, team. Stay right there. For a few weeks now, I've been reminding you that Mother's Day is fast approaching. Now it's just days away. So 1-800-Flowers is here to pick out a gorgeous bouquet for you that'll show her she's loved. 1-800-Flowers still has amazing offers on beautiful Mother's Day bouquets and arrangements starting at $29.99. Now that's an offer that mom would approve of. There's still time to have your bouquet delivered on Mother's Day, but you've got to get moving. With an amazing selection of sweets, treats, and bouquets, 1-800-Flowers has everything you need for Mother's Day and she'll never guess how great of a last-minute deal you scored. Mother's Day bouquets and arrangements starting at $29.99 is an amazing offer, but you have to order today. Trust 1-800-Flowers to make mom feel loved. Order today from 1-800-Flowers.com. To order beautiful and vibrant Mother's Day bouquets starting at $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com slash buck. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash buck. Mother's Day is Sunday, so order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com slash buck. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I do want to talk to you all about this uh, this story I just broke on Fox News. I just see that indicates there may have been some, uh, oh, what a surprise, some deep state 
actors who leaked. This is according to some struck page text messages suggesting that the intel agencies leaked on the Russia case. Of course they did. I mean, the, the intel agencies had a bunch of anti-Trump, anti-Trump zealots who were using the zealously anti-Trump media to try to take down this president. But, but just as, to hold that for one second. Something else we're going to discuss today on the program is how progressives are nasty. Not all of them, but progressive ideology in this country has really jumped the shark and is often incredibly vitriolic ad hominem and meant to make people feel bad about themselves, meant to just go at the individual, not at their ideas, uh, because it is one, it's the product of a lot of brainwashing and cultural reinforcement from the perspective of all these petty totalitarians that find themselves drawn to progressivism. Uh, so that that's one component of it. And also they, they don't have the emotional strength and, and, Honestly, the, the sense of decency to just make it about the ideas. They often go after people. Here is Alabama. And there's going to be a few examples of this in the show today. Alabama, uh, Alabama Democrat John Rogers talking about the president of the United States son. And I, I you, you need to hear this. Play clip one. Earlier today, Donald Trump Jr. condemned your comments. Do you have a response to the president's son? Hey, that's an honor. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. did that. Thank God. Right on. That's just been all right. Because I don't know that he'd been right on since he'd been here. Man, that proved the right to make a decision about abortion. Him being born, that proved the right to be. That's a very, very good defense I have for abortion right to him. Look at him and say, I wonder if should have aborted him when he was born. But he would have made that stupid statement, right? They made a decision to have him, didn't they? They could have aborted him. But they made a decision to keep him. Because he's evidently, uh, Retarded, uh, crazy. He said, "Hey, that's a that's the best defense I got for abortion." Right there, looking at him. There's an elected Democrat official in the state of Alabama, representing the people of Alabama, saying that Donald Trump Jr. is the very best defense he could think of for the right to an abortion because he should have been aborted, and then went on to call him, "quote, retarded." Do you, do you think that this is going to lead the broadcast at MSNBC tonight? Do you think that, whoa, uh, John Rogers, Alabama, can't do that, can't say this stuff, man. That's It's a political ideology without decency, without a moral core. It is statism and lust for power dressed up in a whole lot of fancy, fancy language about caring about the poor and, and the oppressed, but really doesn't care about anything other than the lust for power certainly doesn't enforce any norms of civility or, or, or decency. Um, and just remember that the next time they say, oh, Trump's tweet was so mean, really? You got an elected official referring to the president's son as retarded and saying that he is a defense for the right to an abortion because he should have been aborted. I mean, one of the dumbest things, but there are a lot of Democrat politicians who, who say just shockingly stupid things and do not get called, and, and not just stupid, immoral, heinous things. But uh, I mentioned this, switching gears, I mentioned this Fox News story. Struck page text suggests intel agencies leaked on Russia case, according to some uh, senators in the GOP. Here's what they say. Uh, Republican congressional leaders are calling for new investigation of media leaks surrounding the Russia investigation, possibly emanating from the intelligence community, pointing to internal text messages they say indicate a more widespread problem. 
These texts and emails demonstrate the need to investigate leaks from agencies or entities other than the FBI, according to Senate Homeland Security Committee Chairman Ron Johnson. Um, so here, here's what I see happening. Um, there are going to be people that are in a whole heap of trouble if Bill Barr is able to do his job here, and I think he will do his job, um, and track down communications between former heads of the director of national for the former director of national intelligence the former head of the cia the former fbi director these are people who never ever should have been going on tv trading on their classified access the whole point of their being on tv was that was not just the the perception that they had secret knowledge about trump and russia and, but that they were directly involved in it you know, I, I never would have, from my time at CIA, gone on television to talk about highly sensitive work that the intelligence community was doing on issues that I covered there. You can speak about things in a broad policy sense, and you know that, that those are usually the kinds of conversations you have on TV, but Clapper and Brennan and Comey and these, these paid left-wing shills doing all the kind of demagoguery and shameless pandering to the left that they were doing on television on a regular basis the reason that they were going on tv was that they they were the ones who created the russia collusion narrative while they were in government and then their presence on these tv shows was used as a kind of justification for the continued belief in the russia collusion narrative does any person really think that John Brennan or James Clapper weren't in some way involved in being sources for the stories that were broken at places like NBC and CNN? And does anyone think that it's a coincidence that James Comey briefs Donald Trump on this dossier? Doesn't say that Hillary Clinton and the DNC paid for it. Isn't that an interesting detail to leave out? Briefs him on the dossier and then Tapper, one of the uh, most sanctimonious and self-aggrandizing jerks in the entire world of journalism. Uh, you know, CNN break, starts reporting on the, how the dossier has been briefed. There weren't a lot of people in the room, folks. There were some very bad actors here. There were, there were individuals who betrayed their oaths, who betrayed the loyalty they're supposed to show to the United States government to be partisan hacks for a paycheck in the media. And they did a tremendous disservice to the intelligence community, and they did a lot of damage to, in the case of Comey, law enforcement community. And I, I'm, I am very confident that they will find out that there were uh, criminal leaks. Here's specifically what uh, comes up in these text messages. Quote, these texts and emails raise a number of serious questions and concerns. For example, who are the sisters and what does it mean to say the sisters have been leaking like mad what are they worried about and what are they kicking into overdrive which agency is he referring to and why does struck believe the reference news articles highlights the agency as a source of the leaks they're digging into these text messages between struck and page and they're finding stuff that i'm telling you the democrats are going to want to hide they're finding stuff the democrats aren't going to want to see the light of day and get ready for a lot of kicking and screaming over this because once you start finding people who are leakers, then you know what the question turns into? Why shouldn't we prosecute these people? Why, why should George Papadopoulos face prison time for an unimportant non-lie, but these people breaking their oaths and sharing classified with the media, they would just get away with it? I don't think so.
That's that's not that's not going to fly. We got more on this and so much more, team. Stay with me. So many of the solutions I believe are going to come from our communities, communities like the one where I grew up. Uh, which is an industrial Midwestern city that is exactly the kind of place that our current president targeted with a message saying that we could find greatness by just stopping the clock and turning it back and, and making America great again. When that past that he is promising to return us to was never as great as advertised, especially for marginalized Americans, and there's no going back anyway. There you have Mayor Pete, who's now become a darling of the left. He's one of the top four candidates for the Democrat presidential nomination. I think maybe top five, top four. You know, Mayor Pete from uh, South Bend, a city that I'm, I'm surprised to have found out has a very high crime rate per capita, violent crime rate. So does not speak well to Mayor Pete's management skills as the uh, chief executive of the city of South Bend, Indiana. But he's saying that we're never going to return that that the the past that Trump wants to return to is not that great and you know and and it wouldn't be possible to, to turn back the clock anyway i just think it's so interesting democrats just culturally emotionally and really instinctively take a more negative view of america than republicans do you see this time and again uh, Democrats derive strength from thinking that they are better than America and need to fix it, whereas Republicans tend to derive strength and, and a sense of, of pride just from being American. You know, patriotism on the right is America is the most wonderful, free, incredible country in the history of, of the world. Patriotism on the left is more, yeah, America is really powerful and great, but it's not that great, and there's a lot of problems, and there's a lot of history we still have to confront, and it's only going to be good if progressives are in charge, and if the left has its way and we become socialist. And, you know, it, it, it takes this, this turn very quickly. Whereas what Trump, to me at least, when Trump says make America great again, what he's just saying is a return to, and obviously one of the most incredible political slogans of all time in, in the, the power that it wielded and how successful it was, but a return to that core Republican belief that this country, that when the American people are free to pursue their destiny, when they don't have the boot of government on their hand or on their neck, when they, uh, when, when you are free to express your pride and love for this country and to view yourself as an American as different from people from the rest of the world, your obligations to this community as different, your your uh, future as in, inherently entwined with this country in a way that non-Americans, it's not the case. It, just a, a recalibration of thinking about what it is to be a patriotic American back to a, a more traditional, you know, I mean, people say, well, Buck, when, when is he hearkening back to? I don't think Trump is saying we want to make this country, we want a party like it's 1799. He's saying... Wouldn't that be an interesting party like it's 1799? Uh, but what he's saying is, you know, it'd be a little bit more like it was under the era of Reagan, I think. Where, you know, we were confronting the evil empire and we had this sense of, of purpose and love of country that was rooted in the fact that, you know, we are, we're not perfect, but we're the good guys. Under the Obama administration, it wasn't always clear that we were the good guys, folks. Obama's position was, you know, the real good guys are the United Nations. You know, the real good guys are the international community. We can, we can sometimes be a good guy, but sometimes we're America, we're a bad guy. 
That's a different, there's a, there's a philosophical separation, an important, fundamental philosophical separation between the Democrats view America in the world and in history and the way Republicans do and the right and the left and conservatives and liberals. And, you know, these are, these are real conceptual distinctions. And so Trump takes the perspective of, you know, we, we need to understand how great this country is and try to promote the aspects of it, try to try to free it up to pursue its destiny of continued greatness. Whereas, you know, Mayor Pete say, oh, he wants to take us back to time when it was bad for minorities. Let me just note that, you know, minority communities, I don't just mean ethnic minorities, I mean minorities of any kind in any country. There, there's always a tension there. There are always problems historically uh, with the way that minorities are treated by and, and fit into the, the broader state. I mean, there's no such thing as as perfection with this, and no one has ever gotten it entirely right. Uh, you know, America today is in so many ways, and the progressives would scoff at this, but the fact that this country gets along as well as it does with itself and you know with each other within this nation uh, just with with all of the incredible array of of differences and groups and individuals and everything that we have is really just a, a testament to the greatness of America. But because it's it's imperfect, there's a focus on down talking America, you know, saying you know we haven't done enough, and and this victim narrative you get from so many people is uh, it, it's far too prevalent. Speaking of the, of the victim narrative. I just, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, who is still a very viable Democrat candidate. I, I think that she's going to have a breakout here in the next few months. Not because she's so great, just because it's kind of a default situation, right? They need to find somebody who gets the left wing base excited enough, but also is, is enough of an establishment player with a high enough profile. And she just she checks off the boxes. But you know, later on, we'll talk about. Hillary Clinton still says that the election was stolen from her, which is I thought that was undermining democracy to say these things when they were worried about Trump doing it. It was undermining democracy. Hillary, Hillary can just say it. But Kamala Harris and the Democrats will cover for her, of course. Kamala Harris also likes to go to a talking point here that, you know, I, I wonder what the basis in reality for it is. Uh, voter suppression. She talks talking about voter suppression. Play clip three. Let's say this loud and clear. Without voter suppression, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. Andrew Gillum is the governor of Florida. So the truth is, we need a new Voting Rights Act. Let's say this. This is just intellectually dishonest. Absolutely dishonest. This is lying to people about the scope of a problem and then saying you want to solve it without having a real solution in mind. A new Voting Rights Act, that would say what? You can't, you can't purge dead people and people that move from voter rolls? You can't have voter ID? The Supreme Court's already ruled voter ID is constitutional. The left can try to fight this as much as they want. Voter, voter ID, voters having ID to vote is constitutional. She's claiming voter suppression, saying Stacey Abrams would have, would have won her election. She's saying it was stolen from Stacey Abrams. It's not true. There's, there's no real case to be made that it was stolen from her. They may not like the rules, but the rules are the rules. But this is what you do to get the left-wing base excited. Lie to them. 
Tell them what they want to hear. Say that there was voter suppression. Do you have any proof? No, but who needs proof when you can just get people really upset about something? Who needs proof when you'll rally the left-wing base with claims of of voter suppression? Of course, voter suppression of minorities. That's always the subtext here. Sometimes they're explicit about it. A new Voting Rights Act. What would it say exactly? That laws that are applicable across the board for people like voter ID, they don't count because certain communities don't like them to count? I mean, what what is it going to say? But the lie is comforting. That there's voter suppression. By the way, the the degree of voting, including within minority communities in these elections, is they're at all time highs. Voting is way up overall. Voting is if if people are trying to suppress the vote in Georgia, they did a terrible job because their voting were uh, voting was at a record for an off season cycle. So again, the Democrats are just making stuff up as they go along, but that's what their base wants to hear, so that's what they do. These guys are bound and determined to go after the attorney general, to go after President Trump and not 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 going to focus on what we need to do to help the country. So I I think they're nervous about Bill Barr, because remember what he said three weeks ago in front of the Senate Finance Committee. He made four important points. First of all, he said spying did, in fact, take uh, take place. Second, he said there is a basis for his concern that the spying wasn't properly predicated. Third, he said there was a failure of leadership at the upper echelon of the FBI. We know that's for, for sure. Comey. McCabe, Baker, Strzok, Page. We know there was a failure of leadership there. And then fourth, he used two terms that I've never really heard before. And my guess is most Americans haven't. He used the term unauthorized surveillance and he used the term political surveillance. So the Democrats are scared. And and frankly, I think when we're talking about obstruction of justice, the real obstruction of justice is what Democrats are trying to do to the attorney general. They're trying to stop him by all these things, this contempt and not having him come testify. They're trying to stop him from getting the answers that we just talked about. You know, when you're taking a lot of flack, you're above the target. And Attorney General Barr drives liberals completely insane, not because he's hijacked the narrative of the Mueller report and all this other stuff, but because he is a pro and he's going to get answers. And they're answers that the left doesn't want to hear. They don't want to know about this. They don't want to hear about this. Uh, The origins of the Russia collusion fantasy are going to look very, very bad. We, we will see. I mean, I, I, am, I am certain that we will see that the deep state was very real, that Comey and Strzok and Page and Brennan and Clapper, that these individuals, Sally Yates, these individuals cooked this whole thing up, showed incredibly bad judgment, incredibly bad faith, and tried to stop Trump from becoming president and then tried to destroy him when he was president and and in the transition process too, using the powers of their public offices to do so. That's what we're going to find out. That no serious, credible human being could have really thought that George Papadopoulos really knew about Russian hacking of Hillary Clinton's personal emails when that wasn't even what they ended up doing anyway. But that was what the storyline was. Andy McCarthy has a great piece in National Review over the weekend about this, that the, the whole FBI story that we've been told this far about how Papadopoulos came on their radar, what was thought, doesn't add up. Doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. They're, they're lying. One thing I find is so interesting is that if you, know, if you lie to the FBI, you go to prison. If the FBI, as an FBI you know, senior official, if you lie to the American people, 
Apparently nothing happens to you. You know, if you work within the FBI and you are dishonest with what happened, you do not face any consequences of any kind. Maybe you'll get maybe you'll get fired if you're Andy McCabe, who should face criminal prosecutions. It's worse than that. Uh, Devin Nunes is also on this issue. I mean, he is not forgotten. And, you know, they remember when they were completely demonizing Nunes. I mean, they hated Nunes for a while. Uh, but De- Devin Nunes was someone who early on recognized that there was a whole other component to this Russiagate spy story. And he wants to know how many human assets were run against the Trump campaign and, and under what auspices and what the justification was. Play clip 10. I'm not worried about whether or not they were spying on the Trump campaign. That is fact. What I want to know is how many spies with an S were involved in this. We have to get to the bottom of this. All this information needs needs to come out. It does need to come out. And the reason that you've seen such a ferocity of criticism against Attorney General Barr is they know that they have to undermine him before he can even get going. I mean, they, they have to destroy... Their best play is to destroy his credibility with as many people as they can. They'll never destroy it with you and me because we know that Barr's a... Dude, Barr's a stud. That guy's a badass. He, he is... And everyone I speak to in DOJ says he is such a calming presence there because he, he knows all the games the pathetic Democrats are going to play. He knows all the lies and the misdirection that the mainstream media, the little Democrat Aaron boys and girls... Uh, for the Democrat Party and the mainstream media. He knows what they're going to do, their stories, what they're going to say. And he's just going to stay on this. He knows that when we finally get the information about what happened with this Russia collusion investigation, it's going to look very bad, not just for the people who were the, the deep state operatives, if you will, the Comeys and the McCabes and the Strucks, and, but it's going to look very bad for the Obama administration. And that's the that's the true sacred cow for the left right now. I mean, they, they have this whole story, this whole theory and 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 belief that Obama was scandal free, that Obama's eight years were marked with just such tremendous progress in America. And it was also wonderful. And the, the, the politics were at such a different tone and. Meanwhile, I mean, the economy was uh, took forever to recover from the recession because of Obama's policies. You had race riots in major American cities with the demonization of cops. You had uh, the first U.S. ambassador murdered abroad because of just sheer incompetence because of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. You know, you had a lot. You had the Syria turned into a comp- uh, an utter nightmare. Half a million people died. We went into Libya, turned that into a disaster. You know, disaster after disaster. Well, what's the big win for the Obama administration? Obamacare. Oh, you mean really expensive health insurance in the individual market that's not very good with limited doctor networks? And I mean, that that's supposed to be the. But they cling to this. I mean, that's the story. That's what you're that Obama was amazing and wonderful. And so even if we can't even if the Democrats can't have Obama running again, something someone who is more like Obama is the promise. That's why Joe Biden appeals so much to, to at least a third of whatever whatever it is, the 25 or 30% of Democrats now that are for Joe Biden uh, because it would be a return to Obama. But if we find out that the Obama administration and at some level he had to know about this. I'm not saying he knew every step of the way. That's not how this works. 
Comey wasn't sending Obama emails every day. We're going to do this. We're going to put this asset in place. But it is it defies belief that someone who is as, as obsessed with CYA as James Comey wouldn't have covered himself with Obama at some way in, in some manner or in some way at some time. There just had to be notification that you're, you're running human assets against a presidential campaign, trying to entrap them, trying to convince them to say things to then justify a, a surveillance dragnet under counterintelligence auspices. I mean, this, this is the biggest political scandal of my lifetime. And it just shows how dirty Democrats are willing to play. They're complaining about voter suppression, even though voting is way up in the places they complain about. You know, they complain about stolen elections. They say all this stuff. Meanwhile, the real cheating was what the deep state did to Trump in the 2016 election. That's the real cheating. That's where you see people breaking the rules, acting in bad faith and fighting dirty against their political opponents. Just fighting very dirty. Um, they they hate they hated Nunes because they knew that they couldn't throw him off target. They hate Jim Jordan because he doesn't wear a, he doesn't wear a suit jacket ever because you know he wants to take you to the gun show even though you can't really see it I guess under his shirt. Um, but they hate Jim Jordan because he's a fighter. They hate Mark Meadows because he wants to get to the truth. But they hate Barr more than anybody. You know they want Barr to go the way of Jeff Sessions where they can just mock and ridicule him until he caves, until he gives up. That's the plan. That's really what they want. They, they want to um, push him aside. It's not going to happen. I cannot wait until we get, one, the declassification of the documents that Trump has been promising about the Russia investigation origins, and then also that Inspector General report, I think it's going to be lit it's going to be lit. It's going to be a bad day for the deep state, bad day for the Democrats, and it's coming. I think it's also critical to understand that, as I've been telling candidates who have come to see me, you can run the best campaign, you can even become the nominee, and you can have the election stolen from you. Stolen! It was stolen! She says, uh, this is something that I don't think we should just let slip past. Here you have the, the presumed, not just nominee for the Democrats all along for the 2016 election, but the next presumed president, Hillary Clinton, who is claiming without evidence, as they like to say over the Washington Post, the New York Times, whenever they talk about Trump, without evidence that the election was stolen from her. Uh, this is a, at, at a minimum, a massive exaggeration. I mean, this is a, a lie based on the decontextualization of the Russian interference. I mean, the Russian interference was a, a blip on the radar screen. It barely even registered at all. It, no serious person believed that it turned the election away from Hillary Clinton it was not that close. It was not that tight. Hillary maybe should have campaigned in Wisconsin. Maybe should have actually run a campaign where there was something to vote for other than just, I'm Hillary Clinton, so I get to be your president. But she is saying that it was stolen from her. And, and I just can't help but recall that the media was, at the time of the election in 2016, 
all jumping all over Trump, saying that he wouldn't accept the election results. And now here she is, like a crazy person, two years plus after the election, and she doesn't accept the results. She she says it was stolen from her. As I've been saying for a long time, there is a hole in Hillary Clinton's soul, and and the only way she can fill it is money and power. Uh, She's had to make so many, let's just say, uh, sacrifices of character and decency and honor along the way that she feels like the world owes her that top job. And even when she had it, I would note, it's not like that would make her a happy person that feels fulfilled. I think she does lack a, a degree of of fulfillment. I think it's obvious from the way she conducts herself now in public life as a post-presidential candidate. Uh, but speaking of post-presidential candidates, I also have not forgotten that, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton are doing this uh, this spe- this speaking tour. The Clintons, you know, I always forget when Chelsea's involved, which, I, you know, I don't know. What does Chelsea have to tell people about? How to be the daughter of a of a former president and have people throw money at you despite you not being particularly good at anything and never having to have a real job. She's never had a real job. I, I There are other people who are famous and, and sons or daughters of politicians. You could say this about too. I'm not limiting to Chelsea Clinton, but Chelsea Clinton's never had a real job. Never had a job job. Even the job jobs that she's had in the past are given to her by virtue of who her parents are. And she's never really in a position where she has to perform because, you know, I mean, she just she was on the board of IAC, which is a huge media company. It's owned by Barry Diller. She made three hundred thousand dollars to show up for six meetings. What does she know about IAC? What does she know about digital? Nothing. It's just name recognition. It's just being in the Clinton orbit. And these people all take care of each other and pay each other off. But I remember debating with people at CNN when. What feels like a different lifetime now. I was I was a CNN contributor. They were actually paying me to go on their air and try to enlighten their delusional liberal masses about what time it really is and what's really going on in the world and in America. Uh, and and I remember there was this this outrage, just this just complete outrage at the idea that the Clintons were really selling access. And that what the market will bear for a Bill Clinton speech isn't really how much people need to hear Bill Clinton give the same, you know, kind of bloviating, bombastic nonsense speech over and over. It's paying him off so that you maintain a relationship and access to his wife, who was going to be the next president of the United States, they thought, for eight years. And I would say this is so obvious. And this is why people were donating all this money to the Clinton Foundation and all along, I had said, and you can go back, you can check the tape on radio, check the tape. I had said, just wait until it's clear that Hillary Clinton's not going to be the next president of the United States. And see what happens to the Clinton Foundation, dona- uh, Clinton Foundation donations and see what happens to their speech feeds and their live events and how we're. And of course, I was right. And all the people that were running around saying that Hillary, that that was crazy and that people just love Bill Clinton's speeches so much, they pay him 500, 600, 700 grand for a speech. No one makes that for a speech. There's no such thing. No one's one hour long speech is worth a half a million dollars. You don't have to pay anybody a half million dollars to get them to do that. No, no one does that. In, in the political world, I mean, you know, maybe if you're paying, you know, Beyonce to show up and play a set or something, they'll pay a million dollars for an hour. But even, I don't think Beyonce would do that. Uh, not enough money. 
But no one does that in, in the former politician world. It was all just a big scheme, folks. It was, it was all just Clinton corruption. It was selling access, or at a minimum, the perception of access to the highest offices in the, the highest office in the land. That's what the Clinton Foundation was all about. That's what those speeches, that's how, the, that's how they became fabulously wealthy, over $100 million without ever creating a product, selling a product, you know, b- building a business. They were the business. Hanging out with the Clintons, having them speak at your event, that was the business. And it was only so lucrative, only so powerful because Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. I just, I haven't let this go. And all the people that were donating, especially the foreign governments that were donating money to the Clinton Foundation, they were just buying access and and purchasing favors. That's what they thought they were doing. And so the people that are now telling us about how we need to go through Trump's tax returns, we need to do this and that and everything, they're the same people that that were running interference for the Clintons for all those years, acting like they were too stupid to understand what was really going on when anybody paying attention knew that the Clintons were just, they, they were so rapaciously and unrepentantly greedy. And that's one thing that you can always, I mean, the Clintons are just, they are just such unbelievably uh, self-indulgent, money-obsessed individuals that they couldn't hide what was going on. So they needed everybody else around them to come up with these narratives and the media that you know loved them so much and was going to have eight years of access to Clinton and the White House. It was all going to be so amazing. They acted like they're a bunch of morons. Now they they can't even give away tickets to their live events. They you know the donations Clinton Foundation are down like fifty percent, maybe more. I mean, would jump falling off a cliff. And the people that were pretending that that wasn't the case, they act like we're not supposed to remember how just shockingly dishonest they were along, I and mean, how just completely and utterly fraudulent their analysis was on this because they were just they were trying to do what they could to carry water for the Clintons. And now we know that that's what was going on. Now we know that the the corruption that Clinton's engaged in was so widespread and so systematic that it almost overwhelmed our ability to comprehend it. You know, this is like you kill kill one person, you're a murderer. You kill a million people, you're a conqueror. The Clintons were, in terms of corruption, in the the million-person body count. I mean, it's just so out of control, so widespread. And we just have more and more evidence of it coming in all the time. And I, I have not forgotten. I will not just let it go that the Clintons, not only that Hillary won't accept that she lost the election, which you'll hear more and more of that going, is that it was stolen from her, but that she was selling, selling her office and her husband was profiting off of her office and the perception that she was going to be a very powerful individual in elected office, and uh, and it's a disgrace. I mean, the Clintons are a true disgrace to American politics, and I'm n- never going to forget what they've done. Israelis have every right to defend themselves. I've seen a video that I, I, we can't validate just yet, but where there have been uh, strikes on homes, civilian populations. These rockets were fired with civilians uh, around them in order to protect to return from return fire. Israel has a right to protect itself, and that means that there are going to be some serious reprisals if Hamas fires more massive volleys of rockets. Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, terrorist organizations that do not want to live side by side with the state of Israel. They want to eradicate the state of Israel. Where is this going now? What happens next? We have our friend 
Davide Foon on the line with us. He is the editor-in-chief of the Algaminer. And, David, great to have you as always. Always a pleasure, Buck. All right, first, what what created this most recent? I mean, to the best of, of your knowledge and your sources in Israel, what, what, what created this most recent uh, violent exchange? So, look, the situation that you have over there on the ground is that basically Gaza, the entire Gaza is a tinderbox. You know, it can take off at any time. I mean, there are, there are tens of thousands of advanced missiles that are sitting there. And basically, it's just a question as to whether... Uh, the leaders in Gaza want to switch it on or switch it off. So there are two major groups in Gaza that have the ability to fire a serious amount of, of uh, munitions into the Jewish state. The, the leaders are a group called Hamas. Their payments is a mainly uh, Sunni Islamic states like Qatar, for example. Uh, but they're slightly more independent per se and their objective at this stage probably has a lot more to do with shaking down the israeli government basically allowing funds into the gaza strip that they can then use and and loosening some of the restrictions in importing uh, cement or other uh, banned items into the gaza strip or or items that have been used uh, to then turn around and and, and, uh, create weapons that are used against the jewish state like terror tunnels for example so why now? Why, why would Hamas have an interest in escalating now? Um, because, you know, there's been a delay apparently in the payments in terms of money that Israel has allowed to come through. They also understand that Israel has um, its, its Independence Day celebrations coming up. It's hosting Eurovision in two weeks. So they see a great opportunity for, for a shakedown over here. And Israel is not looking to escalate either for, for exactly the same reasons. Then you have the second major group, terror groups that that uh, vies for influence in the Gaza Strip, which is the Islamic Jihad terror group, which is backed by Iran. And when Iran tells them to pull the trigger, that's when they're going to pull the trigger. And obviously Iran has an entirely different set of considerations when they want to draw the world's attention away from themselves sometimes. And of course, there are other objectives as well. We've seen some pretty cryptic news coming out of Israel, some reports in the Hebrew media saying there is a secret reason as to why Israel didn't want to take this fight further at this time. So it seems that they've sort of capitulated to what the demand was. They're allowing the money in or they're saying that the money will go in. And uh, for now, things are quiet. Now, do you think that this is uh, this is not the beginning of, of some broader you know, war, some broader military action. I mean, it sounds almost like the way the way you describe it, uh, David. This is like a a mafia state in the case of of what's going on in Gaza that's doing this to just demand some cash. Yeah, that that's a good way to put it. I mean, look, we we see these flares from time to time. Having said that, everybody in Israel knows that it is only a matter of time until uh, an all-out war is going to have to take place. The only question really is when. So now is not the time. Now the objectives are different, at least so it seems, as of the ceasefire holding this morning. But, you know, in the end of the day, you have uh, a scenario on the ground for the only way to end this threat once and for all for Israel is basically to send in ground forces. That's going to come with a cost of thousand or, or more Israeli lives, maybe even thousands, and no Israeli leader is ready to take that step at this stage. Having said that, you know, the citizens of southern Israel and the citizens of Israel in general are angry, they're frustrated, 
they, they see no end in sight and they're not willing to live under this the shadow of this threat forever. Now, the Israelis pulled out of Gaza, right? So you often hear people in the media in, in, in this country say, well, you know, the, the, they'll talk about the occupation of Gaza, but, but there is no occupation of Gaza. How has this affected Israeli opinion about what the, the proper security posture is vis-a-vis Gaza and and you know just just what is what has this meant inside of the inside of Israeli politics when you see that you know they they pulled out right Israeli forces pulled out and it was not some small concession it, it involved a lot of, of logistics and the abandonment of territory and moving settlers and and Gaza has not been any but really a a, a, a a problem for the region I mean it's not like Gaza has responded to this by saying, well, "Well, we'll act in good faith now going forward." Quite the opposite. So I'm just wondering, well, you know, how, how has that affected the perception of the pullout and how one must deal with Hamas going forward? You know, that's that's a very good question. And uh, you know, I, w- I was actually on the ground back in 2005 when the Israelis pulled out of Gaza. So so I saw, you know, some of the sentiments and and uh, and, and the emotions that that uh, you know were, were felt in the country at the time. And I think, in the end of the day. It's put a nail in the coffin uh, to the land for peace concept. You know, people wonder, a couple of weeks ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu was reelected. People wonder how there's this sort of permanent majority for the right-wing bloc in Israel. And really, that's what, that's what it's born of. I mean, e- even the, the, the opposition, uh, even, even the, the, the major party that, that gave Netanyahu a run for his money, they're also not talking about this land for peace paradigm. I mean, the Israeli tried. The Israelis tried it with Oslo. Um, they gave uh, you know a lot of control or autonomy to the Palestinian Authority or the PLO, and they were the, the response was the second intifada, bombing and blood all over the streets, thousand uh, casualties. Uh, they tried it with southern Lebanon. Uh, what they have today is is probably 150,000 rockets pointing at them from from uh, Hezbollah territory in southern Lebanon, and they tried it with Gaza. Every single time they vacate territory, it becomes a a terror breeding ground, a a terror a terrorist controlled territory um, that puts Israel in further and further and further danger. The, the Israeli people are permanently traumatized by this concept, which is why. Uh, when we see a new peace plan unveiled uh, by the Trump administration, which they've been promising now for some time, and they're expecting sometime, I think, in the summer to be unveiling, um, I think that they're going to uh, shy away from a a central focus on the land for peace paradigm because uh, there's just no appetite for it in Israel whatsoever. And... How is the Trump administration doing in terms of the relationship with with Israel and and backing them and and is there really uh, is there a feeling of a difference between how Trump and his uh, his cabinet and and the people that are running national security over here interact with Netanyahu and the Israeli state from, from what we saw under the Obama years? Oh, there's no question. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the biblical story of Joseph and Pharaoh. Uh, the years of famine and the years of plenty. If the Obama years were the years of, of famine, uh, these are the years of plenty. Um, there has never been an administration that is more aligned with the Israeli perspective of the region, worldview, um, ideology, 
and certainly uh, strategic understandings. Uh, and this is not, you know, me saying it as a pundit. You know, I've I've heard this from ambassadors, from from ministers of the Israeli government, from advisors to the prime minister. I mean, they almost cannot believe their luck. I mean, that's that's really how how good it is. I mean, we saw yesterday um, Israel responding to this this uh, incredible barrage, 690 or so missiles fired from Gaza, four deaths on the Israeli side, and the American response was. Go get them, Israel. You know, we back you, whatever you want to do. We saw that we saw the, the vice president, the president, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, who you just played over there, all voicing their support. And this would have been unheard of in the Obama administration. And even in the Bush administration, you had this sort of support. But there was also this, you know, uh, uh, calling on all sides to, to tone things down. You know, this sort of... Uh, evening out of of the of the playing field, you know, as opposed to, you know, this full throated support for the Israeli position that we're seeing today. Definitely is a difference, um, and I think it's one that has some very important implications for the region. Speaking of which, uh, David, where do you think all this goes? I mean, what are we just in this this cycle for the next? You know, the next ten years. I mean, is 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 there going to ever be some form of of, of a of a real Palestinian state that will take shape in some of these territories now where you have a the Palestinian majority, you know, what, what is the Israeli position on what the, what the region should look like in, in 10 or 15 years? I think the way that a lot of people feel is that there actually is already a Palestinian state. I mean, Gaza is independently an independent territory that is ruled by Palestinians. And, you know, we've, they've seen what's, what's become of it. So the, the question is really going to be, um, you know, if there's going to be any more land that's ceded. And I think the answer is, is no. It's not likely that that's ever going to take place. So the question is, you know, what's going to happen with a territory that exists? What's going to happen with Gaza? And what's going to happen with, with the West Bank? Um, you know, and obviously there'll be different answers for each of them. Uh, with the West Bank, it seems that, that there's something of a waiting game going on. You have Abbas holding on to control. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's sort of at the the twilight of his of his uh, twilight zone of his career. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, looking and thinking and seeing uh, who might the likely successor be. And that, that will probably uh, be the most likely uh, scenario or the most likely uh, 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 question that everyone's going to be asking before taking further steps. And then there's also been some talk of, of annexation from the Israeli side uh, of some of the territory over there. Uh, it, was, it was something that Netanyahu spoke of in his campaign. So... Uh, that we're going to be waiting to see how serious um, that promise was or that idea was. In terms of Gaza, it's it's, it's run by Hamas, so there's only one real way to deal with it, <laughs> and that's uh, you know a, a, a military invasion, which which will be bloody and and uh, and uh, a really nasty uh, prospect. So, in that sense, you know, it's it's the, the can is just being kicked down the road. And uh, you know, it remains to be seen if anybody's going to bite the bullet, or if it's or or if it's determined that you know this is something but that you we. You don't think this Kushner, this expected Kushner peace plan, you don't see this going anywhere. Well, the, the peace plan, you know, the the, the way that uh, that we see it, the way that I see it, you know, ba- based on what we've heard, uh, based on what we've seen, uh, should not be viewed. You know, as as a continuation of previous 
peace plans. You know, this this uh, sort of land for peace business. Um, I think they're gonna they're gonna present something very very different. Um, they're going to focus on sort of the regional peace. It's not going to be Israel and the Palestinians. It's going to, there's going to be a widening of the peace discussions. It's going to be Israel and the Arab world. Um, there's going to be a lot of sort of economic incentives and, and, and uh, roadmaps and opportunities that are presented. So I think that the goals are actually very different. I mean, we're using similar language, right? We're talking about a peace plan, uh, but I don't think it's going to be anything like uh, any peace time that we've witnessed before. And, you know, we see a lot of Pundits, you know, especially you know former State Department officials and others who are negotiators who are involved in previous discussions, talking about how it's doomed to fail. Um, it may be the case, and it may be the case that that the Palestinians will reject it out of hand. But the Americans and the, and the White House and, and the Kushner team have known this from day one. They, they know what the Palestinians will accept and what they won't accept, and what they're embarking on have to have, have to have taken that into consideration. They know that it's, that the Palestinians won't accept it. They're working on a framework that that can that can create some value and move things forward with or without the Palestinians. Uh, and I think that's going to become clearer as, as more details are, are are emerge. But you know, based on the the few comments that we've seen until now and just our understanding of of the attitude and the approach, I think what we're going to see is going to be very different to anything we've ever seen before. All right, my friend. Thanks so much. David Ifun, everybody, editor-in-chief of the Algeminer. Check out the Algeminer for all the latest on news that affects Israel and the Jewish people in the Middle East. Uh, and great to have you on, David, as always. Always a pleasure, Buck. Always. All right, team. We'll be back in just a moment. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Well, it's likely the Iranians are, are, are reacting to designating the IRGC as a terrorist organization and the fact that the United States will not continue the waivers that five countries have in trading oil with Iran. And underscoring that, Bill, is the fact that the sanctions are really taking its toll uh, inside, inside Iran. A U.S. carrier group sent to send a message to the regime in Tehran, reports of a possible planned attack from the Iranians against U.S. interests or allies somewhere in the Middle East. What is going on here? We have our friend Tony Schaefer joining us now. He's a uh, ex-DOD Intel operative and president of the London Center for Policy Research. Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer, good to have you, sir. Hey, Buck. Always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right. What's, what are you seeing with this whole Iran situation? I mean, the, the headlines today were basically... You know, one, Iran is playing a a role behind the scenes here with this most recent violence uh, with the Israelis, but also the possibility of some kind of attack plotting here. What do you make of this? Yeah, there's uh, I I appreciate Jack Keane's comments regarding the uh, the IRGC, but I think it's more complex than that. We've been pushing, Buck, as you know. And just for your eyes, look, I'm not a neocon, but I do believe that we have to be a lot more aggressive and direct in dealing with the Iranians. And so what this president's done is actually introduced the concept of accountability to the process. Uh, he is working right now to make sure that the economic benefit that the Iranians have enjoyed under the Obama administration, which basically was, yeah, we got sanctions against uh, the Iranians, but we're looking the other way to let our allies pay them money. So the end effect was to really have no effective sanctions, and Trump's ended that. 
Secondly, regarding the IRGC, in my book, Operation Dark Heart, there's a, a, a section in there where we had to actually uh, uh, break, the FBI and I had to interrogate and break a, uh, an operative. Well, that operative was making, bringing money in from the IRGC in Tehran into Afghanistan to pay the Taliban to attack us. Imagine that. So this president, again, has held the Iranians to a much higher and realistic standard. And last, I think that because of this all going on, Buck, they're now reacting badly. I think they recognize they can't wait Trump out. We're two years in. He's not changed. And I think that's what you see the reaction to now. They're basically saying we got to go back and be more aggressive to prove the point that we can and try to get the United States to change course. And their typical and most pervasive tool is terrorism. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, the, the, the very, uh, I think, appropriate response militarily moving forces there. Now, I, I know that it's asking maybe a bit much to get you to mirror image the thinking of, of the mullahs here, Tony. But uh, for them to lash out with this administration, it just mm-hmm. feels like how uh, in, in what universe is that going to get them what they want, which is a, a uh, essentially uh, not a cessation of the sanctions, but at least maybe some kind of relief or some think twice attitude from the administration about putting even more sanctions on? Do you think that's just a miscalculation from their perspective? I mean, how, how do you think they see this? Yeah, I think there's two pieces at play here. I think uh, first off is that, yes, they want to be seen as fierce. And the way they do that is by putting their back up and, and jumping into this. But I think the more important messaging here, Buck, is to our allies. Uh, remember when uh, right after, I, I think it was 2002 or three. I can't remember the exact, I think it was 2002, the Madrid train bombings of Al-Qaeda. There had been attacks, terror attacks, which actually have changed the thinking of, of some of our allies, unfortunately. I, I don't think that's going to be an effective tactic. That is to say that the Iranians try to, to do some things on the edges. Uh, you know, our, our friend, uh, my friend, Ambassador Rick Grinnell, has been very clear on, on getting the European allies, especially Germany, to play take a harder line. So I, I don't think it's going to work. But I think when you're when, when you're basis for thinking is religion, and that, that's what the mullahs do. I think they have almost a flight of fantasy thinking that somehow they can do these things and achieve a favorable outcome to their cause. I just I think there's a huge miscalculation. But again, I think they're basing it partly on the Europeans caving before on some other issues. What do you think the Trump administration should do the next 18 months when at least we know Trump will be the commander in chief? I mean, I'm assuming it'll be a lot longer than that. But uh, what should they what, what should be the, the game plan with Iran to, to continue the, the current? I mean, you you support what the administration has been doing. Yeah. I support it as well. What, what are the goals? What are the what are the next steps? Well, the, the, this is going to be a controversial one, Buck, uh, and and I think the number one thing is regime change. Look, uh, we watched uh, during the Obama administration the uh, the Arab Spring. We missed an opportunity to see the Persian Spring in 2009. The Green Movement in, in Iran was very much alive and wanted to throw off the yoke of totalitarianism. They wanted to get rid of the mullahs. They wanted to get rid of the theocracy, and we failed to be there for them. So, uh, I believe the best way to denuclearize. Iran to make sure they never get a nuclear weapon is to basically, you know, encourage a new regime to come in, a real democracy. 
policy. So that's the first thing. And I'm, I'm sure people don't like hearing that. And I don't think we should do it for them. I'm not for us going in. I'm saying that the people have the right to be free. They should do that. Secondly, uh, we should continue to work with our allies in the region to minimize the ability of the Iranians to gain access to hard currency. Uh, they uh, actually have a very robust economy right now. I think they're doing much better than uh, they let on. We need to continue to, to do things to strangle off the leadership, not the people, but the leadership. And third, and most importantly, uh, as they go about trying to launch terror operations in the region, we uh, retaliate with very strong, very precise military actions, which, again, I think is why you're seeing the military a- a- elements moved into the region today. We're speaking to Tony Schaefer, president of London Center for Policy Research, ex-DOD Intel operative. Uh, Tony, let's move to Venezuela for a second. Speaking about yeah. regime change, that one feels like it might be imminent. But, uh, you know, I, I actually am somebody who does have a little bit of, I get a little uncomfortable when I hear all options on the table. Okay, fine. All options should really always be on the table when you're talking about right. national security of the United States. But this notion of a military intervention of Venezuela, how serious should we view that from the administration's point of view? What would be the circumstances under which that would happen? And, you know, I don't want to make Venezuela our problem more so than we have to. That's my concern. Well, uh, well, you and I share that point. Look, it's not our job to fix Venezuela. Venezuela got to where it's at because of their own problems. So you you roll in there and try to fix it. You're responsible, as we saw in Iraq. So I'm much more of a mind to continue to be helpful. Obviously, if Americans are attacked, uh, we need to consider how to defend the Americans and our equities. But with that said, you know, I think there are allies within the region, the Brazilians and others, who very much have have seen the very same things we're seeing. And, oh, by the way, they live there. They're neighbors. Maybe they ought to be the ones who think about jumping in and actually doing something to help bring uh, positive political change to to that country. So if there's going to be military action, uh, Joe Dunford, General Dunford, uh, has done a very good job of, of something called the buy with and through strategy. And uh, we effectively were able to beat back ISIS in Iraq by not putting overwhelming U.S. military force on the ground, but by organizing our allies to be effective as a military force, as a proxy and effective uh, 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 conduit of, of supporting our policy, which was to free the Iraqi people. So I think the very same thing needs to be looked at here is that how do we organize uh, our allies in the region to be successful and what does that look like? And I I, I think that's the the, the preferable path forward. I think we are uh, far better off uh, with our allies in the region than we've let on. I've talked to some folks at the Pentagon who indicate that they've got some very strong alliances. But, Buck, if there's going to be military action, it should not be U.S., if it's going to be military action that we uh, want to see a proper outcome, we should be helpful, but it should not be, we should not be the ones leading it, and we should not be the ones having to carry the consequences of anything that goes wrong or having to sustain the, Amer- the uh, Venezuelan people after whatever happens. we got less than a minute. I just want to ask you, do you think Maduro hangs on, or do you think he's on the way out? No, I think he's on the way out. I think uh, the only thing that's keeping him there right now, and I tend to believe this is the Russians. I think the Russians have said some things to him to encourage him. And I think this is where we need to put some pressure on Putin and the Chinese to, to let them carry the message for us as well. So, Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer, always great to have you on, sir. Looking forward to going shooting with you soon. Very soon, Buck. Get your get your 10 millimeter, 9 millimeter ready. All right. Sounds good, my friend. Thank you so much. Guys, check out uh, London Center for Policy Research. And uh, team, we are going to roll into a break here in just a moment. We're going to have uh, oh so much more show coming your way. So. Stay with me. Once again, out in front of 
Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, it's not only in my district, it's the most heavily protested Planned Parenthood, I, I believe, in the country. And today's protester, now, she is an old white lady who's going to try to avoid showing you her face. Um, but the same laws, and luckily, that protect her from being out here also protect me from showing you who she is. So I have a couple questions for you, ma'am. How, how many children have you clothed today? I'm sorry, I missed your answer. How many children have you clothed today? How about how many children have you put shoes on their feet today? Have you fed any children today? Or have you just stood out in front of a Planned Parenthood shaming people for something that they have a constitutional right to do? Huh? huh? You're out here shaming people. Who would have thought that an old white lady would be out in front of a Planned Parenthood telling people what's right for their bodies? That was Pennsylvania State Representative Brian Sims harassing an elderly woman who was standing outside of a Planned Parenthood trying to convince women not to make the irrevocable and life-altering in a very bad way decision to abort a pregnancy, to kill a baby. It's, a, I think, a very, a very honorable thing to do. I'm sure she has probably... Uh, save lives and whether she has been successful or not she's certainly trying to save lives by being out there and yet pennsylvania state representative brian sims thinks that he should make a video of her harass her mock her uh, talk about all oh, there's a constitutional right to the there is no constitutional right to an abortion all right there's a supreme court decision that made up a constitutional right to an abortion that is the single greatest act of constitutional destruction in the last, let's call it, in, in, in the post-World War II era, all right, meaning that that was the, the most egregious usurpation of the English language, really, to, or, and, and of constitutional jurisprudence to create a right where none existed. But people still say this. There's a constitutional right to this. And no one really believes there's a constitutional right to an abortion. I mean, that's just, that's just idiocy. People can believe if they want that an abortion is not a terrible thing that we should all try to limit and then eliminate from uh, American society. I mean, they, they can believe that. Um, they can't believe that there's a constitutional right to an abortion. That's just stupid. No, no one really. Th no one thinks the founding fathers are like, I got an idea. Let's do this. Let's write in a constitutional right to an abortion uh, procedure that didn't even exists at the time, and I'm sure if the Founding Fathers knew about it, would have been rather horrified by it. But anyway, uh, this also, though, is a reminder for me. By the way, Producer Mike, do you, you're, you're always my Pennsylvania expert. Do you know this state rep, Brian Sims? You ever heard of this guy before? No, I haven't heard of him until today, actually. What a, what a jerk. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty classless move. And the video of it showing it was even worse than it sounded because he was, like, stalking her. And she was... Trying to avoid him and not be confrontational. She, she was an old lady, and he just would not. He was circling her, getting in her face. It was pretty disgusting. Ugh. Yeah, man. I mean, just also as, as a guy, as a man, to corner and harass on the street, you know, an old lady like that uh, who wasn't bothering him. She was just, she She does have a constitutional right, although you'll notice the, the abortion extremists are always trying to truncate the right to free speech when it comes to opposing abortion then you know you have to keep a certain distance from the clinic and you're not allowed to you know you know they're, they're always trying to just be little totalitarians in favor of the the death cult that they've been supporting since roe v wade uh but you know brian sims he, even apart from the substance of this issue on which he is very very wrong 
Uh, I believe he's a noted LGBTQ activist as well. That's something that I, I just read a little bit about this guy today. I'd never heard about him before. Uh, but but he approaches a woman this way, and it, it's so aggressive and, and so dis, so dishonorable. I mean, there's just something about being an, an able-bodied you know, male in your 40s who is going to get up in the face of and really try to... He's trying to scare her. I mean, he's trying to scare away a person that, that is described, and I don't mean this in a mocking way, as a little old lady who is just hoping that she can convince some women, don't have an abortion, have the baby that is growing in your womb. Just just do that. That's a better that's a better decision. Um, you know, go to a crisis pregnancy center where they will help you with this. You know, go to a place where, you know, go to your church, go to your synagogue, go somewhere where there will be support for you. Don't don't do this. Don't go to Planned Parenthood. Uh, and yet he thought it was a good idea to, to harass this woman. I just note that the left has this 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 PR in place of how they're the nice ones. You know, they're the ones that care about people. And, and I know you know this without me telling you, but it's just a, it's not true. Uh, in fact, I find that the left is, especially when you're talking about the hard left, people that are, are real ideologues, that are, are true progressives. They are many of the nastiest, uh, dishonorable. And I, I really I use that word a lot. I know. But, you know, honor is something that you either have or you don't. And it comes from within. And, it, and it's about how you carry yourself. Uh, how you how you conduct yourself day to day, how you interact with the people around you is your word to be trusted. Do you think of other people and not just yourself? Do you do you have a sense that the, the you are upholding not just your own reputation, but 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 building on your soul day in and day out? I mean, you're actually growing as a human being by the way you interact with other people and, and the way that you treat them. And and you know, do you have some aspiration to be uh, to be decent in your conduct? All the time. Do you hold yourself to standards? I mean, that's where that's where honor comes from. These progressives, they, they think that's like a antiquated nonsense. I mean, they have no interest in being honorable. They have no interest in being kind and being thoughtful. In fact, many of the worst organizations in media, uh, the very worst organizations, in my opinion, that are considered somewhat mainstream are hard left organizations, places like Media Matters for America and, uh, you know, or organizations that do all these boycotts and all these efforts to destroy and take down these they're merciless absolutely merciless i mean the progressives are are without uh, without decency without honor without mercy and not, not only are they getting in an old woman's face here one of them getting an old woman's face because she doesn't want people to kill babies uh but there's really a kind of glee at humiliating this old lady Putting her on video, having the video go viral. Show, you know, he was proud of this. He took the video. He wants everyone to see. He's humiliating an old lady. If I were this guy, I wouldn't be able to sleep for for a month after acting this way. I mean, I would never act this way because I'm not a, a piece of scum. But he, he's proud of this. Progressives, as much as they want to lecture you about Trump and oh, Trump is so mean and this and thing. Trump, Trump is a counterpuncher. Trump doesn't, you know, chase around little old ladies and, and harass them and say horrible things to them and is really mean to them for no reason. Progressives do that and they're proud of it. They're proud of it. So I think that's worth remembering the next time they want to give you a lecture about decency and restoring decency to our politics. Progressivism is oftentimes incredibly indecent in the way that it treats people and it is always indecent when it comes to the issue of life and, and abortion and the protection of the unborn. So 
I just I have a very different takeaway than uh, state rep Ryan Sims here. Why does he try that with me sometime? Put put a little video camera in my face and try to be a tough guy. Try to be a smart guy, Sims. We'll see. How, we'll see how that goes for you. It's a little little friendly invitation or not so friendly, really. For the first time on the Buck Sexton show, team, I, I get to introduce you to one of the, the true professionals in this business and one of the nicest people in the business as well. She is, of course, the anchor at 11 o'clock on Fox News, and she has a new book out, Finding the Bright Side, The Art of Chasing What Matters. We have the, the wonderful Shannon Bream joining us now. Shannon, thank you for making the time. Buck, I am so happy to be with you. I feel a little funny because usually I'm asking you all the questions. I, this, is, this is quite a role reversal, so we'll, <laughs> I'll, see, I'll see if I can, if I can uh, you know, get myself into the mindset here, Shannon. But I want you to just tell me about this book, The Art of Chasing What Matters, why you write it, and what do people need to know? You know what? I think everybody, all of us have common threads kind of in life, hitting really tough times um, and figuring out how you move forward from there. I mean, I share some of the worst and toughest times in my life, um, for sure, and finding out that I have a genetic illness that um, there's really no cure for it, unfortunately, and kind of learning to try to advocate for myself in the midst of that. Um, but, you know, tough times with my husband as well, going through his own trouble with a brain tumor. And, you know, I think everybody in life, it may be a different thing. It may be financial. It may be losing someone you love. I mean, I, I went to some really dark places, but I found hope in that and came out the other side. And I really wanted the book just to be an encouragement to people that wherever you are, um, there are good things. There is hope. There are lifelines you can reach out to. And, of course, I tell a lot of stories where I laugh at myself, and I'm happy to do that. So hopefully people will laugh along with that as well. Now, I mean, you, you mentioned your, your husband, who I've met, is a, is a great guy, and he, he seems to be, everything seems like, you know, he's healthy and going well now. Mm-hmm. When you talk about a brain tumor, though, that's one of the scariest things anybody can hear about anyone, any loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, in moments like that, when you are going through that process, Shannon, where did you turn, where did you turn for strength, and where did you turn to uh, help put you in a, in a position to fight through and come out on the other side? I mean, for me, the number one thing in my life is my faith. And so I know for a lot of people, it's a place of comfort to say, listen, there's a bigger plan than me. This is, I believe, um, you know, my faith as a Christian, this is not a surprise um, to God, my father. I mean, he knew this was coming. He's going to walk us through it one way or the other. Um, and so for me, that's that's incredibly comforting and in knowing that good or bad, I mean, there is purpose in all of it and um, finding strength there. And, and, you know, in turn from that, there were complete strangers who were people at churches that would hear about what was going on with my husband um, and that would send us notes. I mean, these are people that I'll never meet, but they share our faith and wanted to say, hey, we're praying for you. We heard about it through the grapevine and um, we're just supporting you. And that was incredibly encouraging to think. People I may never um, meet this side of heaven um, wanted to reach out and just say, we're with you in this, that there's a broader you know, world of faith and family of faith that is um, reaching out to um, hold you up, even if you don't know their names. And, and um, it's just a beautiful thing. You know, you see, you see someone like you on TV, and you're a Fox News anchor, and I'm sure to uh, many of the millions of people who watch your show across the country, and I think this is common. People elevate those who, who are successful, who have reached a level uh, similar to, to where you are in your career, but particularly in TV and media. And, and there's this perception that, you know, you've 
You've, it's just all been lined up the way it was supposed to be, Shannon. You know, I, I hear this from people all the time about different people, and and I, I'm friendly enough with with some of the folks like you who are who are uh, at at the pinnacles of their careers, where I could say, well, I could actually tell you a story about you know, and you're telling them obviously in your book. Do, do you come across a fair amount of that where people are are just really surprised that it hasn't just been like one one string of, of victories and ease after another that you actually had to turn to your faith as well that you've had struggles that are as very real as anything can get in life i mean do you do you come across yeah. that when you talk to me about the book i sure do and the thing is i'm so happy to be vulnerable and transparent about that because i think when you look at someone and think oh gosh their life is so great and easy and everything's fallen into place i think that can be really discouraging to the average person out there because we all are average people with struggles and trouble and so i'm really happy to just kind of pull back the curtain and say nope i've been in the dumps before i've had trouble and um you know my first tv job i got fired the guy told me i was hideous i was worst person he's ever seen on tv and i had no chance of making it in this business and i'd love to tell that to our college associates and young people who come to tour through college and that kind of thing to say, it's okay. If you get fired, it's going to probably happen to all of us at least once in our lives. Um, But if you uh, have a dream, if you believe in yourself, if you pick yourself back up, just keep fighting. I mean, you may go in a different direction than you ever thought you would. Um, Certainly that's the case for me, but you may end up at an even better place. And um, I'm happy to tell people, listen, I've fallen down a flight of stairs in front of a room full of dignitaries. I mean, I've gotten fired, whatever it is. Um, I think it's good for people to know. No, there's been a lot of bumps along the road, um, but you still just keep fighting. Shannon, what really matters? Before we let you go, I just want to know that's it's in the title of the book for people who are listening. Uh, some of them probably right now are having their own, you know, at a point in their lives where things aren't adding up the way they're supposed to. They've got their own struggles, their own problems. And hearing from you may give them a bit of inspiration. What really does matter? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's not what the world, quote unquote, tells you, the the money in your bank account or the cars or the trophy spouse or, um, you know, that promotion. It's really not there. I mean, if you're a person of faith, I think it's in that. I think it's in your relationships and your family and friends, the people who do not care about any of that stuff. They're going to be there with you um, side by side through the good and the bad. And I think being able to be vulnerable and open up to people when you're really struggling, there will always be at least one person, even if it's a stranger, that you can get a lifeline from and keep moving and just ask for help. I mean, I think that relationships are really um, kind of the fabric of our whole life. And when we're pursuing other things to the detriment of our relationships, we're really missing out on, to me, what matters most. Finding the Bright Side, The Art of Chasing What Matters. Uh, That's the book by Shannon Bream. You can get it now on Amazon. And uh, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. And also thank you for always being so kind as to have me uh, drop by your Fox show. Always a pleasure and an honor, and best of luck to the book, and give the hubs my regards. I will. Thank you, Buck, and come back soon. All right. Thanks so much. Team, we'll be right back. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Roll call time, everybody. Who missed the roll call? I missed the roll call. It's been a few days. A few days. Although, it's kind of a rainy week. I was going to tell you it was a great weekend. I had fun this weekend, but it was a rainy weekend here in D.C. I want some of that good weather. I want to get out there and get a little bit of, a little bit of sun on my face. If you find yourself riding in open fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled, for you're already dead. You're an Elysium. Good things. Uh... 
TJ. Whoa, TJ, this is this is a an an opus. Uh, here we go. Buck, perhaps this is thinking too much into the future and maybe even counting my eggs before they hatch. But when Trump wins, see what I did there? Does it behoove us to be a little more critical of him for his final term since there's no re-election we will have to worry about? To me, me, it feels like we're teetering on the potential for a mass conservative revolution that could be led by honest and critical Gen Xers and millennials like you, Shapiro, Crenshaw, Owens, Kirk, and the list goes on. But there's a contingency of older school baby boomer conservatives. I won't name names, but you know who they are. That can be a little too sycophantic toward the president. I'm sure their tone won't change for his final term. This, in turn, will leave a sour taste in the mouth of those conservatives and potential conservatives. Looking forward to the next chapter of conservatism. It may even bleed into our next round of presidential candidates for 2024, like Crenshaw. I think for the sake of conservatism, our younger pundits and leaders have to be louder and more influential. Thoughts? Well, TJ, I like the idea of me being louder and more influential, so I can sign off for that. Uh, and I think you are... Look, there's, there's always going to be some intergenerational tension within any political movement. Uh, but I'm, I'm somebody who tries to always take the perspective of respect your elders. They know stuff you don't know. They've been through stuff you don't know. I thought I was, man, I thought at like 26, 27, I was one smooth operator. Smooth operator. Uh, that wasn't even close to the song, was it? That was way off. Um, but I, I thought I knew a lot of stuff. And and 37-year-old Buck thinks 27-year-old Buck doesn't know his his uh, forehead from his behind. I mean, it really, it's amazing. And so I, I'm, I try to remind myself that 47-year-old Buck may be like, wow, 37-year-old Buck had a lot to learn. It's probably going to be the case. Now, hopefully he'll still have a lot of hair, though. Gina writes, hey, Buck, current workout music request, try Within Temptation, high-powered group, great for getting your heart going. All right, all right, Gina. You know, I do like this uh, this this band for workout purposes, and you guys can all make fun of it. I like Skillet, though. I've never heard of them before, but they kind of popped into my Spotify feed, and some of their stuff is is good. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, a little bit like Evanescence. Remember they had that really big song like 10 or 15 years ago? Sort of like that, which if you like that kind of stuff. I also listen to some very heavy bass hip-hop music when I work out, so because I'm cool. You know, I, I know what the kids listen to. Hello, fellow youth people. Uh, Michael writes, Buck, is it just me or would Democrats lose most of their votes if people stop believing their constant lies and half-truths? I'm not a Republican, but in my opinion, most of the lies seem to come from the left. Am I just unknowingly biased, or is this true? Shields high. Um, Michael, I mean, I'd like to agree with you. I might be, it might be a little bit simplistic for me to just say, yes, the lies all come from the left. There are Republicans who lie, too. And you say you're not a Republican. Um, I, I would say this. Here, here is a real distinction between left and right. I mean, this really, this is not trying to be a pundit and get, you know, people all riled up or anything like that. This this is this is real. I'd like to think everything on the show is real, but this is real real. Uh the left often has to lie about what they really want and and what their end goal is in order to get enough people to go along that they have the power to do what they want to do. So you have people on the left who will pretend, for example, that they don't really want government control of healthcare, socialized medicine, 
when they very much do, but they they're not you know they they will dissemble they will uh, they will hide their true intentions from the American people so that because the, the twenty or thirty percent of America that is true left on issues it's really more like 20, fifteen to twenty percent, but they know when because because they share the same ideology. Uh, with the head of the Democratic Party now that is very progressive. They know what they're really trying to achieve, but they're happy to uh, be dishonest about it along the way. They're happy to tell people untruths as long as it gets them. So that's, whereas Republicans, I find, tend to say, look, we want we want this. We know it's not perfect. We know there are some trade-offs, but this is the thing we want. There's greater honesty about what the Republican Party is trying to achieve uh, than, than with the Democratic. I mean, open borders is another one. I mean, Democrats want open borders. They just won't say it. They do not want the enforcement of immigration law. They do not believe that immigration law should be enforced in a way that, uh, that makes life more difficult or uh, you know punishes people that break immigration law. So, but they won't say that. So that is that is a difference between Democrats and Republicans. And the lies and half truths on the left, I think, are are an important they're, they're a feature not a bug roger writes okay buck i've really enjoyed your push on the russia probe and keeping us aware of all the updates switching gears to israel any good reads on the conflict in history between palestine and israel thanks man roger i'm glad you're joining the show and i hope you and particularly enjoyed the conversations we had today about what's going on in, in israel uh, i do not have a great reading list for israeli palestinian stuff i really don't uh, I mean, I know some of the big names, uh, you know, Tom Segev and obviously Thomas Friedman with From Beirut to Jerusalem. And, you know, I'm familiar with with some of the very well-known authors on the subject, but, you know, Israeli-Palestinian stuff is there's so much on it. And there's so many people that have such deep expertise that, you know, you really have to roll up your sleeves and get into it to know what the heck is going on. It's not a subject where you it's not a subject matter or rather it's not a subject where you can be a dilettante and not look like one when you're trying to analyze it. I mean, you really have to know where you are on the issue. Be honest about that, because uh, there's there's so many people who all they do is Israeli Palestinian issues. I mean, there's so many people that this is the core of their expertise. So I, I am not an Israeli Palestinian issue issue matter subject matter expert, uh, and so that's my way of saying I don't have any great books for you that jump out of uh, that, that come to mind. Um, but maybe I can ask my friend uh, David, who is this is the issue that he follows more than anything else, and I can post on Facebook a list of them. Dwayne writes, "Dude, your Bernie impression is getting much better." Well, Dwayne. I will I will take the compliment. Although I think my Bernie impression has always been fantastic. Books amazing. He gets it right. He knows. He knows that it's about millionaires and billionaires and healthcare for everyone. A right, not a privilege. Not just for the rich, the super rich, the fat cats. Um, but yeah, the Bernie's getting better for sure. Definitely. I'm a little sad that Beto, that like he's not just like doing better in the polls because I just thought that We'd be talking about Beto for such a long time. But it turns out Beto is, he's flamed out. As I've said, Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete came along and stole Beto's tuna fish sandwich. Nom, 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 nom. It's all gone now. Stole a sandwich right from in front of him. And I remember I used to like eat tuna sandwich and chocolate milk. I used to drink so much chocolate milk. This stuff's incredible. 
Now, apparently, you know, calories and sugar is not good for you. Chris writes, Buck, I'm the only person who remembers Judge Knapp, or rather, am I the only person who remembers Judge Knapp claiming British intel involvement and getting suspended from Fox at the beginning of this sad saga? Now Knapp is trashing the orange Adonis, losing all credibility he ever had with me, like a watered-down George Will. Funny how the MSM trashed Knapp then, but can't remember that today. Chris, I I have always uh, enjoyed my personal interactions with Judge Napolitano. He he has always been a gentleman when when we've talked. Um, I do not understand what he is trying to accomplish with a lot of his analysis these days. I I, I think that he is, I think he's way off, and I think he's not doing himself any favors. So my my, you know, I would not say that Judge Knapp and I are friends, so he doesn't fall into the friend category where I won't say anything negative about him. But he is a good. He has always been a good guy to me. I have no no complaints about him. Um, I just think his analysis is way off. I just think he's wrong on this stuff and has been wrong a lot. Every time I see him on Fox talking about something Mueller probably later, I go, "That's not right. That's not true." I don't know what's going on there. Because um, because I because I like the guy, but I think he's just you know I think he's way off. Team gonna close up shop in the Freedom Hut for the day. I think we covered a lot of ground, a lot of territory as we tend to do. Uh, looking forward to chatting with you all tomorrow. Please tell a friend about the podcast. They can download the Buck Sexton Show on iTunes. Share it with somebody this week. And uh, we will talk tomorrow. Shields high.